Hi, this is Frank Connolly, and welcome to another edition of Dig Deeper, Mind Edge Learning's occasional podcast on critical thinking and creativity in the digital age. Our guest for this episode is Jennifer Ware, uh, one of my esteemed colleagues here at Mind Edge. Uh, Jennifer also uh, teaches philosophy at the City University of New York and uh, is an expert in ethics uh, and related considerations. Uh, she has a piece currently in the New England Journal of Higher Education on some of the ethical implications raised by artificial intelligence and other forms of advanced technology and automation, which is a fascinating piece. I recommend you all read it. And welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Uh, and I just wanted to say that we're going we're gonna to start uh, off by talking about creativity, but the, we're talking about it in the context of not so much human creativity, but creativity in terms of technology, artificial intelligence, and uh, other forms of advanced automation. So this is obviously an issue you've spent some time looking at and then thinking about, pondering deeply. And, and uh, first, I guess, traditionally, uh, people have thought that one of the things that makes humans unique is the capacity to be creative. As artificial intelligence makes greater advances uh, on the technological side, is that distinction between humans and, and bots or, or, or machines still valid? Yeah, I mean, I, that's a really great question. And I think that there's a lot of intuitive force to the idea that machines aren't creative and people are. And this is one of the really important markers that divide us. But, you know, part of what's so interesting about thinking about machines, thinking about technology, is that it really forces us to think about ourselves. So we make these these things in our image, we make these robots and these machines and this artificial intelligence um, sort of in the image of ourselves and using what we know about our own minds. But then when we're sort of forced to differentiate ourselves from them, it suddenly becomes really hard to articulate what it is that makes us what we are. Creativity is one of these markers that comes up, I think, most frequently, maybe along with things like the capacity to learn new information or the ability to experience or at least demonstrate emotional responses, right? So the idea is that, you know, machines are only um, responding to programs. They, they follow rules that we give them, and these rules are going to be limited. And that these capacities, like the capacity to learn and be creative, um, are sort of rule-less, right? They're unlimited in these other ways. But that's not obviously true. Right? It really depends on what we end up saying or deciding creativity or learning is. So one way to think about creativity is to think of it as putting together things that weren't um, used in the same place, right, in the same place. So like taking disparate ideas and combining them, right? So maybe you're creative when you come up with the idea of a unicorn because you took this thing that, that was a horse and you took this thing that was a cone and you combined them, right? But if that's what it is to be creative, to just combine previously uncombined um, objects or ideas, then machines can do that. There are sort of advanced forms of artificial intelligence that exist that can take information and produce outputs that combine it in new ways. You know, there's deep mind programs that can write stories, that can produce music, you know, songs that didn't exist before, that can take playful images and make them nightmarish, right? These are all things people have done. If, it, what, if what it means to be creative is to have that kind of aha moment, that like, oh my god, there's this new idea. We might be inclined to think that what happens as a person when I have an aha moment is that I wasn't thinking anything and now I am. But really, I probably wasn't thinking anything explicitly, anything I could introspect on, 
But there are tons of other mental processes that are happening below the level of, of consciousness. You know, we're just making associations all the time, and our minds are primed to sort of turn on different concepts when we encounter new stimuli so that we can anticipate what's coming. And it can feel like there's just this snap thing that happened. But really, if we could dig deeper into our brains and our minds, we would see that there were all these steps that preceded that aha moment. Machines could have that, right? The rules are just going to be a little bit more explicit. But I think that the really interesting thing here is when we start to try to explain what makes us human, we have to operationalize these mental states like learning and creativity. I'm not a very good chess player, but I'm a chess <laughs> fan. And it was a famous match roughly 20 years ago between the then world champion Gary Kasparov, who famously lost to an IBM computer, Deep Blue. And up until that point, people had always thought that, well, all a computer can do is just brute force, run through a million possible moves and pick the best one. It's not really creative, but maybe it is. Is that perhaps a mark of creativity? Maybe. I mean, I think that if if we want to say that that's not what being creative is, then we're really tasked with this challenge of saying what else it could be and then demonstrating that whatever that other thing is, is something we do that it can't do. Because if, if whatever we end up sort of explaining our own creativity um, as being is something computers could do, well, suddenly we're not unique anymore, right? There is at least this potential. You know, and computers have learned not only to play games with great expertise after being given the rules, but they've learned the rules of games that they've only watched, right? So they're... It's a scary. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, you, you don't even tell it, you know, here are the rules of this game. You just say, watch people do this for a while. And, you know, it seems that there is this potential for not only operating according to a set of rules, but absorbing new rules or coming to recognize rules in play. Which sounds very close to learning, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it does, right? Again, if that isn't what learning is, then we have to, you know, we have to come up with a, maybe a finer grain definition of learning that humans meet the conditions of that robots don't. Yeah. And so as we, we keep thinking of, of concepts that we traditionally associate with humans and, and saying, well, maybe we can't just limit it to humans. Maybe machines are capable of it. It kind of leads down the road to the idea of, of consciousness and self-awareness. I mean, is that is it possible, not so much from a technological aspect, but, but from a, an ethical, philosophical standpoint, might machines be someday conscious and self-aware? That's a great question, um, and and not to keep sort of pulling the same move over and over, but it is the move of philosophy, which is what do you mean by conscious, right? Yeah. If it means to be a thinking thing, right, which I think would be the the definition that would be most common. You know, we have a we have a few challenges in front of us. It seems like it is possibly conceivable. You know, there are, are really heated debates over what conceivability would mean. But part of what matters here when we're asking whether or not machines can be conscious is what we think the requirements of consciousness are. So if we think that being conscious is a functional state, right, if it's having certain capacities, the capacity to be creative, the capacity to learn, the capacity to maybe experience something like pain, right, or respond to stimuli in a certain way, then if a machine meets those conditions, it's conscious. If you're inclined to think that consciousness is maybe something more immaterial, right, so maybe there's a soul or a spirit, 
then no level of sort of functional identity between a robot and a human necessitates that the robot is, is conscious, right? We could say, well, it looks and acts just like a human, but there's this thing that we can't know is there, so we can't know if it's conscious. It doesn't prove it isn't, right? But it leaves this question open. You know, when, when thinking about whether or not a machine could be conscious, I think that, you know, in philosophy, there's this thought experiment that really sort of comes in centrally. It's uh, John Searle's thought experiment, and it's usually called the Chinese Room. And John Searle was critical of the idea that machines could ever really be intelligent and argued that the most we can get is a simulation of real intelligence. So, you know, programming a machine to think is like programming a sort of model to simulate a flood. You don't create a real flood, right? You just kind of see what would happen if there were one. So to try to buoy his position, Searle introduces this thought experiment, and he has us imagine that there is a man trapped in a room, and this man does not speak Chinese. He can't read Chinese. In fact, he's so sort of unfamiliar with the Chinese language that symbols, written symbols, just look like scribbles to him. And while he's in this room, there's a little slot in the door, and people are passing in pieces of paper with, you know, Chinese words written on them. And he has a book that tells him, sort of, if he looks up that symbol, what symbol to write and, and feed back out. And he's working sort of so quickly, he's so familiar with this book, that people outside the room believe they're communicating with someone who understands the language. And so Searle says, look, we have something functionally identical to someone who has a mental state of understanding Chinese. This room can respond to inputs with the right outputs, but it doesn't understand Chinese. The person in the room doesn't understand Chinese. The room itself doesn't understand Chinese. So he says, look, we can have functional identity that is merely a simulation, that isn't the real deal. Mm -hmm. And that's what he thinks machines are going to be. But might over time the person inside the Chinese room learn just from continued exposure to all of these characters? I mean, at some point, at least the, the, the character in response, he or she is going to have seen that character a whole bunch of times and something is going to click saying, oh, okay, that means this. I'm not sure what that coming in means, but then the next time he sees that coming in, you know, he might start to put it together and, and might, through continued brute force application of this process, start to learn Chinese. Yeah, so Cyril is going to, um, Cyril's not going to want to say yes to that, right? Because yep. okay. he's, right. he's arguing this position. And I think it's important in the experiment that the this book that the, mm -hmm. the actor is using to quote-unquote translate has no English in it. Okay. So there's no, you know, if we were imagining that, you know, he was getting in a question like, mm -hmm. what's today, um, that was written in Chinese, and translating it into English, and then translating so it back. Be, there'd be no way for There's be, nothing to latch on to, to. There'd be a way for him to link the output to the input, but he wouldn't know what it what right. it meant. He wouldn't know the context. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and Cyril thinks, you know, even if this guy um, internalized the book entirely, right? Yeah. So now he's like out in the world. He's not in the room anymore. The book isn't a physical book. It's just in his head. And he was doing this look up where he looks up a symbol and responds with a symbol. That that is not understanding. So we could in this, you know, the, the sort of consequence of that is we could encounter this person in the world, believe he's understanding Chinese. He's not looking up yeah. these symbols in a book, but he's not right, because there's something missing. This is where things get really hard, right, and where people who don't like Searle's account 
get sort of frustrated is how is that different, right? If this guy has internalized the book, he's responding to our questions seemingly with fluency, how is that different? And one of the worries that comes up is that if we are going to reject this sort of functional capacity as being indicative of intelligence, then how do I know you have a mind? People so. have asked that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> my wife, I get that from my wife all the time. But uh. but we get maybe a sort of solipsism, right? Where, you know, Descartes solved the problem for us that, you know, I have a mind. I, I think, therefore, I, I am. am yeah. If I have the ability to doubt my own mind, that means I have one. Just that, you know, in order to doubt, there must be a doubter. But there's this, you know, problem that comes in pretty quickly right after that. How do I know you have a mind? I have no direct experience of your thoughts, right? It's all indirect. I infer that because when I'm picking up an umbrella to go outside and I'm thinking it's raining, that when you pick up an umbrella to go outside, you're thinking it's raining. But now if we have this idea that there could be machines that are functionally identical, they do the same things but have no inner life, am I justified in inferring that you have this kind of inner life? So the higher we raise the bar for artificial intelligence sort of being at least considered conscious, the more we sort of jeopardize our arguments for assuming or inferring that other people have this capacity. You are causing my brain to short circuit just from, just from all this, right? But again, that, that's, right. I'm, I'm assuming that, talk about a, a low bar. I mean, I... <laughs> I will assume you have a mind, and I think that we're, it's quite reasonable for us to do so, but that does, it makes it a little bit harder to be too flippant about yeah. functional arguments for the for artificial minds. That's interesting. Let's try to take it further. Let's say that machines could be considered conscious, self-aware, capable of learning, all that kind of stuff. What are sort of the ethical implications of that? What obligations does society have to machines? What what are, are machines entitled to certain protections? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. I mean, so many moral issues come up when we're thinking about um, advances in technology. This is one that I think really is sort of a standard sci-fi plot point right now, and and it's because it's something I, I think we should be worried about. So we normally conceive of rights and responsibilities as being the kinds of things that people have but that other things don't have. And sometimes this is a point of debate when people argue that animals have rights. They're trying to say that they're similar enough to people that this should be sort of extended outward to them. But we normally don't think that like birds have rights and responsibilities. They don't owe us anything, and, and maybe we don't really owe them very much either. And the closer something gets to having something like human-like intelligence, right, when we're thinking about maybe chimps and we're thinking about our pets, we start to think that that these rights and responsibilities might go out to them. Although there is a bit of an asymmetry here. We usually talk about their rights, so things we shouldn't do to them. We talk less about responsibilities, which is interesting because usually those things are kind of one side of, of a coin for one another. You know, usually we think of something as a right to do something and also as a responsibility of a similar kind. But it at least means we have responsibilities to acknowledge those rights and respect them. So if robots are thinking things, meaning they're getting closer to being like us in these sort of relevant salient ways, then it might mean that there are things that we can't or shouldn't do to those robots and things that the robots can expect of us and we can kind of be blameworthy for or held accountable for if we violate. You know, what those are is probably going to depend on how like us they are. There's this sort of sphere and like the closer you are to the middle, perhaps there are like more rights and responsibilities that are endowed. 
This is this is getting perilously close to Blade Runner, uh, which is one of my one of my son's favorite movies. Interestingly, I mean, they do sort of raise some ethical questions about society's responsibility. I mean, if there are robot rights, what are they? I'm certainly not going to take any sort of authoritative stance here, but some of the kinds of questions we might want to ask are: if we can create a thinking thing, is it okay to do so? This isn't unlike the question we ask, or the question that I'm sure lots of parents ask when bringing a child into the world, right? You're creating something that in virtue of being able to think might have certain kinds of experiences, not all of which are great. There's sort of a heavy moral burden there for reflection. So even if we can, should we? If we do, are there certain kinds of living conditions that are morally required? So a difference between a robot worker and a human worker might be that you can work a robot worker a lot harder, right? You can just keep increasing sort of data capacity. And if we think that robots have rights, then they might have a right to sort of a reasonable workload, right? Maybe there's some wrong in increasing that capacity sort of on and on. Although part of that might depend on whether or not it's as taxing sort of in certain ways, right, for a robot worker to be working. So all of these questions are lots of ifs. A lot of it depends on what exactly uh, the kind of machine we're talking about is and what its sort of design is like. But it, it would mean, right, if we think that robots are intelligent enough that we want to err on the side of caution and treat them with a certain sort of dignity, then mistreating them, which might mean working them too hard, which might mean speaking to them in a certain way, which might mean doing things to them that would be questionable to do to to humans, those things become much more sort of morally salient and and charged. And we certainly don't want to get them angry at us. Well, (laughs) right, right. That's, That's a whole different line of science fiction. <laughs> but not unrelated. I mean, usually yeah. the robot wars, where they start That's from right. the sense that robots are being mistreated. Yeah. You know, and, and something that does come up in science fiction a lot, too, is if you have a robot and you turn it off, you update it, you do something to it that causes it to sort of lose this um, historic information, this memory. Have you done something that's akin to brain damage or murder, right? If, in fact, robots... And again, regardless of whether or not they are intelligent, if they are intelligent-seeming enough that we want to err on the side of caution, then I think those questions become important. I mean, we tend to think when we use the term robot, it's anthropomorphic, is that the right mm-hmm. uh, right term? So, I mean, it looks like us, but not all robots do, certainly. There right. Are, you know, there are warehouse robots, and there are self-driving cars, which are robotic. Your piece in the New England Journal of Higher Education looks at uh, some ethical issues that are raised by the advent of self-driving cars, which will soon enough be on the market. Working in another Jack reference, I hope before he has to get a learner's permit, <laughs> he'll have a car that will be able to drive him so he doesn't have to do that, but that's a separate issue. But definitely... There are all kinds of ethical implications, and so why don't you, if you could, run through some of those as as you saw them and as you described them in your piece? Yeah, totally. So, you know, a batch of ethical questions sort of comes up when we start thinking about machines that will, in one way or another, be acting on their own, acting independently, meaning they've been sort of given a program but then unleashed into the world. So automated cars are causing a bit of a ruckus uh, for this reason, right? They're this um, sort of near future reality for a way in which we'll interact with machines in a high stakes way that are making their own decisions, at least in the moment. And there have already been a few instances in which self-driving cars have caused fatalities. You know, and, and the specifics there are, are kind of 
debated about whether or not it was the car's fault or whether or not there were other kinds of user errors that led to these fatalities. But we can expect that automated vehicles will cause harm in the future, even in optimal circumstances. And so one of the moral, the moral classics that comes up here is the trolley problem, because we can expect that automated cars, while operating in the world, will have to make decisions in suboptimal circumstances, just like everyday drivers do. Sometimes there's just no harmless choice. You're driving and there is a motorcycle sort of on the right side of you. Someone, you know, starts to cut over on the left. What do you do, right? Do you swerve? Do you not swerve? You are driving and someone steps out in front of you quickly and you can swerve up onto the right, but there's someone on the sidewalk. If you swerve to the left, right, you might clip an oncoming car. None of these choices is without consequence. There are also instances in which safe driving requires that we break the law. So if you are merging onto a highway and traffic is going above the speed limit, right, in order to safely merge, you need to go the speed of traffic. So you need to break a law. So when designing these automated cars, we need to anticipate the the circumstances they'll be in and give them rules for what to do when the options are obey the law or act safely, injure one person or injure two. And so this is where the trolley problem can not necessarily give us answers, but help us think about the variables that are most important to us, morally speaking. If you could just very briefly describe what the trolley problem is. Yeah, so the trolley problem, the the version I'm going to be talking about here uh, sort of originates with the philosopher Philippa Foote, and it presents us, again, with a circumstance in which we have a choice to make. We have two options, and they both suck. Right. So in the the classic trolley problem, you're standing near a trolley track and there's a fork in the track and there's a trolley coming down. And right now it's um, going to keep to the left side of the fork. That's what it's on on track to do. And there are three people standing on this left side of the track and they don't see the trolley coming. Right. And you're too far away to yell for them. We can even complicate it. They're tied to the track. Right. Some sort of like old villain (laughs) movie thing where they get tied to the track. Right. right, Exactly. You know that if the trolley hits them, it will kill them. It's going fast enough. There's no way to, to stop the trolley. It's moving too quickly. The engineer couldn't stop the trolley quickly enough. The only thing you're in a position to do is pull a lever. You happen to be standing right next to the lever that will divert the trolley onto the right side of the fork. And if you pull the lever, it will save these three people's lives. But there's one person standing on the track that the trolley would then go down, and that person would certainly be killed. So your choice is either do nothing and three people die, or pull the lever and one person dies, but the three people are saved. When you ask a general audience what they would do, most people indicate they would sacrifice the one person to save the three, right? And the idea is there that both options are harmful, and so you minimize the harm. But, yeah, but what if I'm the person? Exactly, right. <laughs> right. So it gets a lot harder when you complicate things a little bit. So if instead of pulling a lever, you have to push someone off of like a bridge, right? So there's a, there's a sort of infamous twist on the trolley problem where you're standing on a bridge over the tracks with a very large person. And so instead of pulling a lever, you could push this person off the bridge and it would stop the trolley, saving three people, sacrificing one. People are suddenly really unwilling to make that call. 
right? So the same folks who before said, pull the lever, you know, it's not great, but it's the best thing to do. If now what they have to do is physically Kill push person. someone, yeah. right? Yeah. Then this difference between killing and letting die becomes much sharper. Because before they felt like, well, if I don't do anything, I'm, I'm killing these three people. If I pull the lever, I'm killing one person, but it's like a permissible kind of killing. When you mo- remove this distance that the lever provided, now people are like, no, but if I, it, I, if I weren't there, those pe- three people would die anyway. So I'm not responsible for their deaths. But if I push this person, I am. So and and, How about you make a moral judgment about the three people too, right? What if it's not a mom and her kids, yep. it's Putin and Kim Jong-un and, or some other morally reprehensible person like whoever it was that directed Mars Needs Moms or something, you know, just a really... Then yeah, that, that, that three serial old. killers yeah. versus, like, one neurosurgeon, yeah. right, who, like, has this ability to perform a life-saving surgery that, like, no one else knows about. It gets a lot harder with additional information. And this is a problem with utilitarianism in general. So utilitarianism is um, a moral theory that says that what you ought to do is minimize harm and maximize pleasure, right? Um, Good things. And it's very utilitarian to say, pull the lever, kill one, save three, because in general, all things being equal, three lives are better than one. But things are never equal, right? It it always depends on those particulars. And you're not going to have information. You don't have time to go interview those three people on the track. Um, Looked like Putin, but I guess it wasn't. Yeah. Right, right. right, and, right. And, so, and also, you know, just as a side note, it's difficult to know how we um, incorporate information that one could have discovered but didn't when sort of evaluating whether or not someone's blameworthy with utilitarianism. So, so sort of back to now, automated now cars. Like yeah, cars. yeah. We're asking the cars to make these decisions. Exactly. Right? And, and as you pointed out, if suddenly it's your life, right, you're the one who can stop the trolley, you're the large man on the bridge, and you can jump and stop the trolley, people are much less willing to do that. So one way to read this is to say that we have inconsistent views about what's morally right, that we're being inconsistent and really what we should try to do is bring our our sort of ideas in line with one another. It also might be meaningful, that these differences might be meaningful in what we think we should do when we're sort of in this objective external stance and when we're um, the person whose life will be cost. When we're thinking about automated cars, if we just program into an automated car this imperative that when you have two options that are both harmful minimize harm, that might sometimes mean that the automated car is sacrificing the life of the person inside. If your options are run into a light pole or hit, you know, a stroller, a mom with her stroller crossing the street, right, then you hit the light pole, all things being equal because you saved two lives and cost one. People are not so comfortable with those scenarios whenever the life that might be cost is their own, the lives of their children, um, the lives of people who are thought to be more innocent than others. So if you're in a position of hitting a motorcycle rider who's wearing a helmet or someone who isn't, Actually, hitting the person wearing the helmet is probably the less harmful thing to do because they're more likely to survive. But we might want to say, well, the person who's wearing the helmet is doing the right thing, so they shouldn't be punished for that. Right. Right? So you hit the person who's not, but you're more likely to kill them. So... This gets really sticky really fast, even even if we thought utilitarianism is right, which is extremely controversial for very good reasons. It's not obvious what we should do um, with that rule. What what would be some of the other schools of thought that might... What's usually presented as like the sort of biggest contender would be a Kantian um, 
Immanuel Kant's um, moral theory, which takes as the primary sort of moral imperative this requirement that we not use other people as means to ends, that we respect sort of inherent human dignity. A Kantian's going to say that the main problem with pulling the lever, saving three, killing one in the trolley problem, is you're using this person as a means to save the other three, right? Pushing the large man off the bridge to stop the trolley. You're using this person who has inherent value that is not the kind of thing that can be exchanged in order to achieve an end. The end is noble. The end is saving life. But for Kantians, there's nothing that justifies this disrespect of, of the human. So the Kantian would just let the trolley run through? Yeah. I, you know, generally what has to happen there is we have to introduce into our sort of moral scheme a really significant distinction between passive and active choices, right? So in a situation where you can either let something bad happen or do something that disrespects that inherent human worth or that value, you do nothing. This is heavy stuff. It is. I mean, I you know, I do wonder as a Kantian what kind of position you can take on a lot of these questions of automation. And it's sort of occurring to me now that making these artificially intelligent things might be antithetical to that way of thinking about morality anyway. The self-driving cars are coming. Yeah. Um, uh, the Kantians can't stop them. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they don't want to, but, Maybe, yeah, um, yeah, but, but I think, yeah. But they're coming, hard. and at some point, they're going to have to make these decisions. The cars are going to have to make decisions, which sort of means that the people who program them are going to have to make these decisions ahead of time, right? And it, it, I guess it makes a difference if you have a utilitarian programmer or, or, or even someone who thinks about those considerations because it will make a practical difference if you're standing on the track. I guess gets to the question of blame. When machines do bad things, either wittingly or unwittingly, who's to blame? So this is a question that does get a little bit easier if we decide robots are conscious, mm-hmm. right? Because right. now they can be bearers of, of that blame. Um, right. They can be recipients of the blame. But if they aren't, right, if they're these things that are part of our world that can cause harm, if they're like tornadoes, which can certainly harm us and do undesirable things to us, but that don't make choices that are not autonomous, that aren't sort of the appropriate subjects of blame, then where does that blame go? And and I think you're right that it goes it seems like the most likely candidate is that it goes to those who made the decisions, did exercise something like you know autonomy in order to um, determine what the robot would do um, that led to this harmful behavior. I don't think this is going to be easy for us to resolve, and I think it's one of the really pressing questions because you're right, the this sort of technology is coming. It's already in the works. Some of it's already in action, right? So who do we hold responsible when bad things happen such that were a person to do that bad thing, we would want to blame them? And also, what does blame look like in these cases? Because we have sort of well-rehearsed uh, ways of holding people accountable, right? So Maybe you put them in prison, maybe you find them, maybe you shame them. What does it look like when we're holding someone responsible for something that they didn't sort of do, but they made possible to happen? So some of the potential candidates for responsibility here are going to be the companies that produce produce these machines, the programmers who make it possible for them to act in the ways that they act, the investors who fund these companies, politicians who pass legislation that makes it possible for machines to be part of our lives in the way that they are. So maybe a legislator who makes automated cars sort of legal, consumers who participate in 
making involvement with those machines normal and, and acceptable. So so now we have a lot of potential candidates for blame. Who's the most to blame? I'm really skeptical that in at least many circumstances, that's going to be clear. Sometimes it will be, right? Sometimes there'll be like a smoking gun, an email where, you know, a programmer was like, this is going to be really dangerous. And the CEO says, I don't care, do it anyway. And then we have a we have a good candidate. I don't think that everyone else that I just listed in this picture is relieved of responsibility because usually it's going to be a lot of people's choices. And also a lot of the harms that, that might come about will be the result of a shared culture of what we take to be acceptable, the kinds of risks we take Mm -hmm. to be acceptable, the kinds of costs that we believe are sort of worth risking. So that might distribute blame pretty widely. I think that the notion of collective responsibility is really interesting when we're thinking about blame for technology. So um, collective responsibility is, it's pretty controversial even among folks who think about these issues um, all the time. It's the idea that groups can be responsible for things in ways that none of their members are. So it's almost like you have this, you know, you don't have just person A and person B, you have this collective entity that is A and B. And it can't be just reduced down to them. So it's not like we can say, okay, the group is to blame, which means each member gets like 10% of the blame. The group is really the subject. So what are the groups that might be to blame in these cases? Companies, governments, marketers, and then potentially entire sort of communities that are complicit in one way or another. I mean, now, typically one of the ways in which our society, or at least American society, assesses blame is through lawsuits. Right. And in lawsuits, I guess they tend to go after whoever has the deep pockets. So it's the, it's probably going to be the companies in that, in that circumstance. But that's yeah. But that, that's not an ethical formulation. That's just a judicial and almost commercial. So responsibility tends to bring about discussions of blame really naturally. But I do want to note that that's, a, that's considered a backward-looking way of thinking mm-hmm. about it. So when we're asking, is so-and-so responsible for this? One thing we're asking is, did they mess it up and what do we do about it, right? Did they mess it up and so can we point our finger at them? Are they, like, appropriate to punish? Another way of thinking about it is, what am I called to do for the future in virtue of this responsibility? Because of the difficulty of holding collectives accountable, right? Like, who do you find? Who do you incarcerate um, when it's the group? Some proponents of collective responsibility have tried to shift the focus towards the future. So saying that really what this notion should should get us is a way of thinking about how we want to change systems and groups, which groups to sort of disband if they're not taking those responsibilities seriously or their actions aren't conducive to to sort of moral actions. So all of these are hard and confusing questions, right? How do we blame groups? We're used to blaming people. It's not clear how that translates. But is blame even the right way of thinking about it? Maybe the goal should be thinking about reform, reform of those groups, so that there's not so much to be held accountable for because bad things aren't happening. Well, Jennifer, this has been a fascinating conversation. And unfortunately, the back of my head is smoking now because you've completely short-circuited my tiny, <laughs> my tiny little brain. But it's been wonderful having you. You are, as, as we say up here in the Boston area, wicked smat. Uh, and it has been a pleasure talking with you about all these weighty issues. So thank you to Jennifer Ware, and thank you to you for listening. And we'll be back in another month or so with another edition of Dig Deeper, Mind Edge Learning's occasional podcast on critical thinking and creativity in the digital age. Thanks. Thank you.